Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast focusing on the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but it's composed by people, and each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it, and Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code, because Ethereum is people all the way down, and it always has been. Today on Layer Zero, we're talking with Cami Russo, the chief S of the Defiant. And Cami, I think, has one of the most interesting stories and interesting backgrounds that I've heard so far. Uh, she has a very just logical process, uh, and we talked about this, a logical process of like who she is is definitely a an A plus B equals C conclusion out of her parents and her family. Uh, she's got that entrepreneurial spirit. She's got a drive to create. She's got uh, an intrinsic interest in, in journalism. And uh, it, it kind of has like logically concluded with where she is at now, which is at the Defiant. Um, but we start at the very beginning. We start at her, her time as a, as a child in Chile, her, when she moved again as a, as a young kid to Miami, then back to Chile for a degree in journalism. Uh, and then moving into her time at Bloomberg. Uh, and it was overall just a, a fascinating story. And I'm, I'm having a ton of fun doing these these layer zeros because I just get to sit back for an hour and a half and hear story time from each of these individual guests. And I think Cammy's story has been one of my favorites so far. Um, we definitely tap on the differences at the very end uh, between Bankless and The Defiant. Uh, so that was a fun little thing to hear. Uh, and we also talk about, um, I, I share my perception as to how Cammy's book that she wrote changed the course of Ethereum for the for, for the much much better. Uh, so uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Cammy Russo, one of the best leaders in this space. Uh, but first, before we get there, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Matcha, everyone's favorite dex aggregator, has just launched an open beta for gasless trading. So if you're trading more than $5,000 in common ETH and wrapped Bitcoin pairs, then your gas fees on Matcha are free. And that's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible price without any trading fees or unnecessary slippage. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your orders across multiple liquidity sources. If Matcha sees that, that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single and easy to use platform and has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and getting a bad price. Matcha also allows you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. So when you're making a trade head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless, connect your wallet, and start getting some of the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Alchemix is one of the coolest new DeFi apps on the scene. It introduces self-paying loans, allowing you to spend and save at the same time. Deposit the DAI stablecoin into the Alchemix vault in order to get an advance on the interest it generates. Borrow up to 50% of the total amount of your deposited DAI in the form of AlUSD stablecoin. Here's the craziest part. The loan pays itself back and you cannot be liquidated. Unlock your assets potential in the ultimate DeFi savings account. And brand new to Alchemix is the ETH vault where you can deposit ETH into the application, borrow AlETH against your deposits while having your advance gradually paid back over time. V2 is rapidly approaching, which will allow for even more collateral types, plus a variety of yield strategies to choose from. Harness the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I-X dot F-I. Follow Alchemix on Twitter at alchemixfi and join the Discord to keep up to date with Alchemix V2 and to get involved in governance. 
Hey, Cammie. How's it going? Hey, David. All good. <laughs> so we, we were just talking before we uh, hit record as two people who both have their own YouTubes and then also consume other people's YouTubes. I had to ask you the questions like, wait, have, have we talked before or have we not talked before? Like, it's actually kind of hard after like two years of, of making and also consuming content to remember if we've actually been into the same Zoom. But we've decided that, no, this is actually the first time. Yeah, and it's so so great to finally do it. Mm -hmm, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so congratulations with everything you've built at The Defiant. And I definitely want to hear about that story, but I think I want to get there in the second half. And so the first half, I want to hear just a little bit more about your background and um, what about your, you know, your, you know, your younger years that caused you to become the person that, that you are today. Um, so let's, let's go all the way back. Cami, where were you raised? I was raised in Santiago, Chile, um, South America. Yeah. yeah. Um, where, where in Chile? Santiago, the capital. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. And that's like, uh, right in the middle, right? Yeah. It's right in the center mm -hmm. of Chile, in the middle of the mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's a nice, nice city. Um, one of it, it used to be one of the most stable and like, I don't know, like one of the few uh, places that just like worked in South America. So it was it's funny, like growing up, um, I didn't have a lot of the, the issues that a lot of other people in South America had to deal with, uh, like didn't hear about inflation or like currency controls or like um, scarcity of goods or anything like that. Uh, Chile is like actually really close or has been historically very close to the U.S. So it has like a bunch of like um, like uh, trade deals everywhere and it's like pretty open. Um, so, you know, like that's I, I grew up in, in this like bubble within uh, South America where everything was fine. Everything worked like you didn't have that like crazy instability. Um, but then later on, I moved to Argentina and that's where I got a taste of all that, uh, all that craziness. So <laughs> it's uh... right. The, the Argentinian story is the, the story that you hear a lot of, right? Mariano Conti yeah. tells this story a lot. Uh, Patricio tells the story a lot of, of ex exactly what you just described. Right. Uh, and that's kind of been the kind of like crypto rallying cries like, oh, look at the capital controls and the inflation going on in, in Argentina. It's interesting that like literally right next door uh, is a, a country that didn't have that history. Um, well, how would you yeah. describe the Chilean economy growing up? Like was there like uh, for, for what I'm familiar with with Argentina, it's very big in like, you know, beef and agriculture and also tech. Uh, what, what were you surrounded by uh, growing up in, in Chile? Um, well, and, and and before I go into that, the yeah, that that dichotomy is so interesting because actually, when my parents were growing up in Chile, it was the other way around, and even more so like my grandparents. Argentina was like the big, like stable or or not stable, but just like growing economic force uh, in kind of the southern cone of of South America, and Chile was just like this really like poor like struggling country and then the roles like really really kind of like two generations so it's 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 like it's really interesting to see that uh, how that happened um and it's all because of just like very populist policies implemented in, Ar in argentina while 
there were more like free market policies implemented in, in Chile. Um, but yeah, like the Chile's main export is copper. So very much a uh, commodity led um, economy. Uh, but um, my parents were both pretty um, entrepreneurial. Uh, and my whole, my whole family is. So, um, so that's yeah. where you get it from. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I have a really great example set uh, with, with my family. Mm -hmm. So yeah, my, my dad is an engineer. Uh, my um, mom studied art advertising, but never really. She was like, uh, she started um, a actually a, a toy importer in, in Chile. So like when, when she had me, she was looking for just educational toys for kids mm. and she couldn't find like any quality toys that didn't have like you know harmful like materials and stuff like that um and so she started importing fisher price toys into chile and was like one of the first uh or like the first person to do that so she and my dad set up a, a toy store which was very convenient for me growing up <laughs> wow the kid the kid with the parents that have a toy store you must have been a hit yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty so. funny um so in gro growing up were you uh, were you exposed to any like things that you have been able to like repurpose now like um uh when did you get uh like your access to your first computer uh when did like what was did you ever have like an entrepreneurial experience or anything with computer science like anything that is like now related to crypto what was like the earliest part of your like your childhood or, or growing up phase where you actually was like oh yeah so i was doing this as a kid and now I do this as an adult? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, like, just like a computer access, I think is pretty similar to what any like kid in the US had, you know, like, I don't know, like I, I had my computer room growing up, like had um, just like got like a, like a Facebook account very early on and um, remember like transitioning from uh, like, um, floppy disks to like CDs and like all that like yeah you, you can I'm dating myself for sure I'm an older millennial <laughs> here uh, um, so all of that I don't think is is, is like too different um, I think maybe like some of the influences like I said it's just like all of my family is somewhat uh, entrepreneurial um, my brother my younger brother uh, he's uh, three years younger than me he never actually he never had a, an actual job like unlike me who like i went in, in a more traditional uh direction uh going into bloomberg uh, after studying journalism in uh, university uh, and it took me like you know almost over 10 years to actually start uh like quit and and start my own company my brother never never had like a full-time job like he's always been a full-time uh, entrepreneur he he uh he started this uh, kind of like Yelp, like early version of Yelp in Chile for restaurants in, in Santiago. Um, then he had this like Instagram for pets uh, called Kloof. And he he was actually part of um, uh, Techstars, which is like a big incubator. And he uh, he lived in New York before I did uh, for mm -hmm. Techstars. Um, and now he has a, a liquor company called Candela. Um, and he got the idea of the liquor company in a trip to their Dominican Republic. Uh, and I was there when he got the idea, like uh, we went up to the bar in, in the resort and uh, the, the we were like, okay, give us like the, what you, what you drink. Like we don't right. like pina coladas and stuff. And, and so he, he uh, made us try Mama Juana, which was like, it's like the local rum 
like a spice rum that they drink in the Dominican Republic. And we loved it. And so my brother was like, I can't believe like they don't sell this outside of the DR. And so that's, you know, what he does now. Like he's now based in, in Miami and has, has his own kind of liquor company. So I have like that example, my, my parents' example. And um, so I, I always thought it was like, like feasible to quit everything and start your own thing. Like if, if that was like actually like a career path that didn't seem so outlandish to me growing up because I had like all these different examples of people who did it. Um, and then from like the journalism side, um, I I always, I've always loved writing. Um, so I, I, I moved to Miami for a brief period when I was growing up. Uh, I lived there for three years and um, I was nine years old. And when I moved, my grandmother gave me a journal and she's like, you're going to want to write everything down. And I think that's kind of what, what started it because I, I got to Miami and was like, you know, dealing with all these different experiences and emotions and like missing home, but also learning so much and having a good time and like all this stuff. And so I started just like writing everything down on, on this journal. And from then on, like I had, I always kept journals and it just like, I don't know, I think it, it made me like writing uh, ever since. So, um, and then uh, my mom uh, was editor in chief for uh, Condé Nast for a, a bunch of like uh, Spanish versions of like big magazines, like Glamour, Vogue, uh, Discover, like a lot of Condé Nast magazines she helped run. Um, so like, I just grew up in like the editorial and publishing world. Like I, I, I loved going with my mom over the weekend to the office, like making sure that everything was closed. Like I saw just like the printouts of like magazine covers and I just loved that whole world. So uh, that kind of writing plus that experience really just made me want to be a journalist. And yeah, here I am. That's a, that's such an easy story to uh, have like, all right, like A plus B equals C, right? So like, you know, uh, Cammie, uh, daughter of a very entre entrepreneurial family, entrepreneurial brother, uh, grandma gives you a journal come to America, which is like a very transitional moment. Like you go moving from A to B anywhere. And then you are given a journal to help, you know, deal with the emotions of mm -hmm. you know, a change. And then all of a sudden we have <laughs> Cammie, the entrepreneurial journalist writer <laughs> operating the defiance. It's such a very logical conclusion right? of, of like the rest of your family. Yeah. Um, there, there's a quote, uh, and actually my, my brother said it at my wedding. Um, and it always sticks with me. It's like the it's always easy to connect the dots looking backwards. Mm. So now now it makes sense, right? Um, but you know, at the time, I had no idea I would end up living in New York, uh, running my own media company. You know, it's like I never imagined that uh, when I went into uh, journalism in the first place. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Where did you go for journalism? What what university? Um, University in Chile, eh, Universidad Católica, mm -hmm. like eh, one, of, one of the good ones in Chile. Um, then I worked at a newspaper there, El Mercurio. It's like one of the uh, bigger uh, uh, or the biggest newspa newspaper in Chile. And um, yeah, so I was like working in El Mercurio and I had this uh, woman next to me who she's amazing. I love her. Um, 
but you know she had been there I think like at that same desk for 30 years and because it's like you get to in Mercurio and you don't move it's like it's an institution in Chile like everyone reads it um so I was like okay I'm already here like I don't want to be here in like the next 30 years like what what should I do next uh and and you know having the experience of having lived in the U.S. uh when when I was growing up um again like it didn't it it felt like okay like maybe I should look beyond uh, Chile and, and see what's out there um and so I applied to different journalism schools here uh, with always like the the goal of getting a big like a job at a big U.S. media company that was like my my end goal and so to do that I I, I realized that I, I needed a degree from a U.S. school because nobody would look at my degree from Universidad Católica and be like sure yeah come nice. join the New York Times <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh so yeah I applied to different schools and got into Northwestern um and from there, I uh, I got into Bloomberg and to like the Bloomberg internship. So d- d- throughout that process, when you were writing either at, at, at your job or practicing for your job, what was the subject matter that you were focused on? Because we're not at the crypto part of this story, right? Like we're, we're still mm-hmm. pre-crypto. So like what, what captured your attention while you were a writer? Um, I think, let's see. Well, in El Mercurio, I, I was in the international news section. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's something I, I enjoyed. Um, it's funny, like, before uh, getting to Northwestern and, and Bloomberg, I, I never really looked at financial markets or anything close to crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I got into journalism. I, I like writing and it, it's like, I like the more I, I don't know. Like I, I, I never, I never saw myself as a like numbers person. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I gravitated more towards like politics, you know, uh, stories. Um, it's funny in in El Mercurio, they initially wanted me to do um, like the social uh, pages, mm-hmm. and so they called me up and they were like, "Okay, yeah, you, you, you're in. Uh, your first job can is." going to be in the social pages and that's been like you know like following like local ce- celebrities around and I like I turned it down I was like no nope. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like what you're turning down a job and then Mercurio I'm like yeah no I, I, I don't want to do that and then they came back and we're like fine you can <laughs> you can cover international politics that was a, a big improvement um so yeah that's that's kind of uh, what I did mm-hmm. and then in Northwestern, uh, I had the I had to choose between different kind of um, topics for the reporting class, and there was like politics, um, uh, business, like environment and art or something. And I thought, you know, like I'm paying a bunch of money to be here. Like I I took a loan to uh, go go to Northwestern, so it was like this better pay off or else, you know. and so uh, I thought, you know, I, I need to make this uh, worthwhile and learn something I don't actually know. So I thought like going into like the business uh, reporting class would be the most useful because I had no idea about anything about business. Um, and I discovered that I actually really liked uh, reporting, you know, writing about money, like re- reporting about like, you know, markets. Um, because to me, it's, 
it was nice to find a more objective way of telling stories, mm. right? Like in politics, it's like always one side versus the other. And he said, she said, and you don't have like, like a fact that you can present and be like, this is what's happening. And it's pretty kind of hard to dispute. And with, with like markets and business stories, you know, there's like different ways to interpret numbers, but in the end, a stock is going up and it's going up and it's going down and it's going down. And if like countries' bond yields actually are like, it are a really good way of representing how thousands of people think about one country, you know? So I just thought that was really interesting and, and, and just like a very like truthful way of uh, seeing the world and presenting the world. So I was really excited uh, by this discovery and um, and I just, uh, yeah, I decided to just like focus on that, on like business and, and market reporting. And then we had this like field trip to the Bloomberg office in Chicago because Northwestern is in Chicago. Um, and I was like blown away by the power of the Bloomberg terminal. Like yeah. this, there's this like black box that just like gets you all the data you could possibly want. Um, and it's just like connected to all the like decision makers of the world and all of these, you know, big brains are consuming your, your news and your stories. And I'm like, okay, this is where I, I, I want to be. So <laughs> that led me to apply to the internship there. So is all of your, like, um, your understanding of like money, business, economics done, like on the, is like on the job training. Like you, oh, yeah. you, you had to do like, you never took, you still never took a class. So you, you only ever learned about this, this, um, just by teaching yourself. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, um, right. Like I, 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 I had this like business journalism class from Northwestern, which, I mean, they, they did like teach the basics of like economics. Well, that was pretty much it. Like that was my background going into Bloomberg. And yeah, you learn everything on the job and you have, you know, this amazing tool that the like professional like fund managers and uh, like central bank economists all over the world use. But and, and you're just like starting out as, you know, the first job uh, as a journalist and you have the same tool. <laughs> it's like it, it like really forces you to to understand things like, oh, like what is a bond yield and writing about all that stuff. Uh, um, yeah, it's like, I learned really quickly that I just had to lose the fear of asking dumb questions because, you know, it's like I had to get get a story out at the end of the day. And, um, and I had to at least like, I had to understand it obviously to write it. So I would like get on the phone and just like ask, ask like, everything like explain what what a stock is you know um and <laughs> like literally it was like because like I, I started like calling uh sources and then they would uh and and reporters like more senior reporters would help me out and just like write out questions that they needed for their stories um and then I remember like having these conversations where I would just like go down the list of questions and I had no idea what like what the person was answering like what the answer was so I could like do couldn't do any follow-up couldn't like follow the conversation so then I just like started like asking my own questions and was like okay but what do you mean by that yeah and that's that's really how how I learned everything I know about uh finance and, and markets um eight years you, at, at Bloomberg <laughs> when you started asking your own questions did that like 
was that really just you trying to educate yourself or was that you learning to be a reporter of your own style? And because mm. for, for me, um, uh, sometimes I try and I, I try and find the question that other people want me to ask, but then there's always like, okay, well, if that's not the question that I truly want to ask, maybe the question that I truly want to ask is also the same question that other people have too. How, yeah, totally. can, you, can you reflect on that for a moment? Yeah. Um, and by the way, I think you're, you're, you're an awesome interviewer. Like, oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. No, like all, all these questions, I don't think I've, I've heard them before. So yeah. Uh, well, that, that, that's hope, hopefully why people tune into the layer zeros. That's yeah, what they're meant no, for. No, really great. Um, it, it was definitely both. Like I, I was trying to, to learn and understand what the story was about so I could uh, write it. Um, um, but yeah, I was, I was learning to be a journalist as well as learning about, uh, finance and, mm -hmm. and markets. So, um, you know, it, it's like, once you get a taste of having a scoop of like having a really well-read story of like, I don't know, getting like a really, uh, like cool and important source, uh, it, it's really addictive, you know? Mm. So it's like, okay, like you get that taste and you want to, you want to do it again. Um, so you try to like, uh, get something out of your interviewer that nobody, nobody has. And, um, and I think, yeah, it's like that dopamine of like the, the, the views and, and like, just like uncovering things that, that haven't been, been said before. It's kind of what, what starts to drive you as a journalist. Yeah. Can you go into that a little more? I think I, I think I find that extremely fascinating. Like the dopamine hit of like discovering <laughs> a scoop. Can you, do you have a, a story where you like got a scoop and what are you just like furiously typing, trying to get the scoop out the door as yeah. fast as possible? You have a story like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. The first one that comes to mind uh, in Argentina, um, there was this period of time where everyone or it seemed like everyone was leaving Argentina just like running out the door because the president Cristina Fernandez had turned like just even even more anti uh like international companies and anti-free market so like there was like a bunch of stories breaking everywhere about like this fund was leaving or this company was leaving and um and there was like a source that I about like a source from a, a pretty big hedge fund uh, based there, and, and they were like really big in in Argentina. Like they 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 were like big, really big investors in Argentine bonds and and stocks. And so I always call this guy. And I remember there was like one week where I, I called him, and he just like wasn't picking up. And then I called again, um, no answer. Then I called like not his direct phone, but like the the like general number. Nobody was picking up. So I was like. I wonder, like, maybe these guys are all, like, have also left. And so, like, I remember, like, going through, like, different ways to try to confirm. And so I think I asked him directly, but, like, he didn't say. Um, and then I, there was, like, one, one of the fun guys was based in London. And I had, like, chatted with him a couple of times. So I, I called him up and I was like, hey, so, um, I asked the question in a way that assumed that they had left Argentina. So I was like, hey, so like, um, when are you like, when's your last day in Argentina? Or I don't remember what I asked, but like, it was like a question like that. It was like a, a clever framing. Is that is that the gist? Yeah. yeah okay, cool. <laughs> like it assumed, like the question assumed that they had left. 
So, mm. uh, but yeah, yeah. He and he answered something like, "Oh yeah, like we we're we're like uh, tomorrow is our last day or something." Like he answered the question kind of like basically confirming that that they were leaving. And so I was like, "Huh, okay." Um, so I'm just wondering, like, is is the reason you're leaving because of Argent like Argentina's really uh, really bad uh, like unfriendly policies? Oh yeah, totally. Like they they suck. Whatever. I don't. That's not the actual quote, but sure, sure. and meaning is there, but quote quotes not there, but meaning is there. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, oh my god, like I got this scoop. Like this big <laughs> fund is leaving Argentina. Um, wrote that up. Uh, like big headlines, like tons of hits, and then I got like this enraged call mm. from from the guy who gave me right. the quote and he's like i thought you were like i didn't come like i don't know he like and i i record everything and so i had i had the thing and, and he complained he complained to my boss he's like i i didn't mean for that to be the news and whatever i'm like I, you know i called i asked you this is what you said i have the recording i have the quotes like and and it was this whole thing like my my editor had to like look at my notes and my recording and they were like nope Camila's right like is this like is this false like are you not leaving they were like well yeah actually we are confirms it twice that's awesome okay so um what motivates the scoop is it like the thrill uh, is it like the, the the possibility of like fame and prowess? Is it just like becoming a better journalist? Like what, what motivates hmm. the scoop? Um, I don't, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a mix of, of all of that. You know, it's like, it's fun. It's fun to uncover stuff. You know, it's like, you feel like a detective. Um, right. um, and, and really like if, if your, your job is to just, you know, report on what's happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, what better way to do it if you're reporting something that nobody else has reported? It's right. like, you know, the ultimate reporting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's fun. Like and, find, and finding it, buried treasure. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Um, though I'll say like scoops aren't really kind of my, my specialty. Like I, I love like getting them, um, but I, I think I enjoy even more um, just like the the feature type of story, you know, uh, like having long interviews, uh, going on on site to see things, and just like be able to like build a narrative around that, and um, and it it can still be kind of school B, you know, it, it can be like a, a story that nobody else has has reported, um, but I, I like the the more like uh, feature kind of analytical. Um, type of story that just like oh like this this happened right 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 the the longer forms the the, the stories not the not the breaking news yeah 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 i, I think um at, th at this point in your uh, we, we kind of went on a, a, a side quest to talk about scoops but uh we were, where we were was you were uh, working at, at bloomberg being a journalist and had just gotten into into markets and business and finance and all that stuff. And I think what comes next is the Ethereum side of things. Is that right? No, not quite. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, so first comes uh, before Ethereum. Actually, uh, can't, comes Bitcoin in, oh, in okay. my in my timeline. So um, in Argentina, I was. This was 2013. 
and um, I was reporting on like inflation and, and currency controls and like all the different ways the investors had to, um, you know, protect themselves against against it. And, you know, I've, I've told this story before, but it's, it's really like what has shaped my my view of the world and why I think crypto is so, so valuable. And it's my own experience with inflation and currency controls because I was earning Argentine pesos as a Bloomberg reporter in, in Argentina. So I, I really felt, um, you know, the the impact of what inflation uh, can do to your savings. You know, it's like 25% inflation at the time that I was there meant, um, you know, keeping any any pesos in the bank uh, meant losing out on, on, on my savings and my money. So um, like, as soon as I got to Argentina, the first thing I was told was you need to convert your pesos to dollars. And that's how everyone thinks. Like everyone thinks in dollars. And if you ask any like anyone on the street, they'll tell you the exact dollar rate that day. Like it's just like very kind of ingrained in Argentine culture. Um, and so to to have like the president one day announce you can't buy dollars anymore. It was just like a huge shock. Like, how how could it be that, uh, like, the government can one day tell me what I can and can't do with the money that I earned, and that's in like my bank account? Um, so that like really shook me. Um, like, I, I literally like after the announcement, I I still had some like Argentine pesos in in my bank account, and before I like I had a peso account and a dollar account, and there was just like this very easy way of transferring money from one account to another. And then after the announcement, like I went to to my bank and the option just like wasn't there anymore. Like just like wasn't there. So I'm like stuck in pesos for like whatever amount I had. Got rugged. Yeah, <laughs> rugged by the Argentine government. <laughs> um, so so yeah, so then like I, I somebody, um, a, a, actually like an Argentine Bloomberg reporter who was based in Spain told me, there's this Bitcoin thing that's really gaining steam in Argentina. Like I have like a bunch of friends talking about it, going to meetups and stuff. So I I looked into it and had to convince uh, my editors at Bloomberg that this was actually kind of worth reporting. Um, and and that's kind of the first story I wrote uh, about crypto ever in, in 2013. Um, and then from there, I was just like, really interested i was like okay this is really valuable it's uh, a currency that's independent that doesn't have any central banks or you know can't be censored and so on so uh that that was kind of my first look um at crypto that that story that you wrote um in 2013 right after you uh, experienced capital controls you said you you wrote a, that was the first story that you wrote was it a story about people using bitcoin as a result of the capital controls or was it more just a story about bitcoin itself and the only thing that the, it was the capital control story that motivated the story what, what what was the actual story yeah no it was a story about you know there's there's all this inflation uh there's capital controls and there's this like growing community in in argentina that are is, is using Bitcoin to protect themselves against inflation. And so there's the story looked at that, like uh, interviewed a couple of people in Argentina who were like uh, buying Bitcoin, I think. And um, and then just like gave context. Oh, like Bitcoin this year surpassed a thousand dollars for the first time. And blah, blah, you know. 
So I, I made the uh, naive mistake of assuming that you started off with uh, Ethereum somehow, because uh, I always thought that like you uh, had gotten into uh, uh, writing for Bloomberg and then and then learned about this Ethereum thing and then wanted to write about Ethereum. I actually didn't know that you actually had such an early history with, with Bitcoin all the way back in, in 2013. Yeah, but it was like that one story. Mm -hmm. um, after that, like I just like kept writing market stories about Argentina um, and then uh, I moved to to Madrid. Uh, I was there for uh, two and a half years, uh, writing about European stocks. Like, like didn't think about uh, crypto very much at all at the uh, time. So the the Bitcoin brain virus didn't make it into your head. No, it's just like something like, oh, like this is interesting. Uh, this is like really cool. Um, but no, it didn't like totally consume me. Like it didn't go down like this like mm -hmm. rabbit hole that like dragged me in and then like didn't let me out now like it was like okay this is interesting this is valuable i see that crypto is cool um but then i just like kept on with with my life uh, unfortunately i didn't even buy bitcoin at the time <laughs> um, uh, so yeah and and then yeah like i kept you know writing just like regular chat by market stories mm -hmm. and until i moved back to new york with bloomberg in in 2017 and at the time i was with uh this team called markets live which just blogged about uh, like real-time market moves uh for for the bloomberg terminal and it was cool because like we had the flexibility of writing about whatever was interesting in the market and it was just like like quick blog posts like maybe like two like two graphs and like and the chart for something. Um, and so 2017, obviously huge year for crypto. And because I was already like, I knew something about it. I had kind of like kept uh, just like informed about the space. Um, and so I just like kept writing like a, a blog, a blog post for Market Live. And then my editors were actually um, interested in me covering crypto for or like elsewhere in Bloomberg because it was just like huge demand and interest right. for crypto that year. Like anything with Bitcoin on the headline would jump to most read on the Bloomberg terminal. And there, there just like weren't any like dedicated crypto journalists um, at Bloomberg. And since I had an interest, they were like, can you cover this thing? So uh, I, I started to have this like, like second job, which was to cover the crypto market. Um, and that that's when... I, I learned about Ethereum mm -hmm. and because like a, a lot of the story that year was ICOs. Right. So right. I wrote the first like ICO story for Bloomberg and trying to like understand, like it was just like very strange to me, like, oh, like all these different coins, like where do they come from? Like, what are they? <laughs> um, and Why then does every I, single one pump? Right. <laughs> Everything is green. Um, it's yeah it was it was really strange and then i realized oh like all of these coins come from this like mega coin like <laughs> ethereum <laughs> i have this never heard origin. ethereum i've never heard ethereum be called the mega coin yet, yeah but that's awesome <laughs> yeah like the, this is the origin of like all these coins is this this thing so i was like mm -hmm. oh that's interesting um and and yeah that's that's kind of how I started like really writing about about crypto and just like never stopped writing since uh, 2017. And that was 
that that really just like fascinated me and consumed me. And then end of 2017, I, I pitched to write um, a book on Ethereum and and yeah and yeah like writing for the infinite machine that like really um it was like ethereum was like all i i thought about for like two years <laughs> why did ethereum uh consume you in a way that bitcoin didn't um you know like i think the truth is i i just thought the stories um behind ethereum were were more interesting um, just like the people uh, behind Ethereum. Um, I mean, on, on one hand, like the story of Bitcoin had pretty much, you know, had, had been told. Um, and I don't like you, you didn't find as much activity then, uh, even then, like, of course, like now it's, it's self-evident um, how much more activity there is on, on Bitcoin than on, on Ethereum than on Bitcoin. But even then it was like pretty clear, you know, like all of this, um, all of all of the like craziness and, and like weirdness of like the 2017 bubble, like so much of it came from from Ethereum, like from from ICOs and like all these like crazy projects. Um, and yeah, you can you can like, you know, we can look down on them and whatever. But of course, like so many good things. Came, came out of that time. Like a, a lot of the top DeFi projects came out from, from that big boom. So I don't know, I think I think ICOs get an unfairly uh, bad reputation. I think actually a lot of uh, good came came out of that boom. Um, but anyways, I think that that's what really kind of um, captured my attention. Just like all of these like crazy dreams, like crazy idealists, like just like all the the the, the people uh, building stuff, or like just like even even the scammers, you know, just like um, like all those stories. I thought it was just like super interesting, and just like from um like like from going going back to the tech, uh, I thought you know okay, so Bitcoin was this was the first uh, cryptocurrency, and it wanted to be peer to peer money, and that's what it does. But then Ethereum, like when, when I started to really kind of understand what it does, so Ethereum wants to be a programmable version of Bitcoin. And it wants to allow for peer-to-peer -peer everything, not just peer-to-peer -peer money. So that to me just like felt like a fundamental step forward in blockchain history. And that was just like worth documenting. Like I, I thought, you know, even if Ethereum doesn't make it, um, it was still the first blockchain to do this so it's worth telling the story like it was worth like spending all, all the time to to write a book about it was there a specific moment that you remember where you were like oh yeah i'm all in on this thing now like i i, I let bitcoin come and go just because it is what it is but i'm not letting this ethereum thing come and go or this DeFi thing come and go was, is there is there like a, a moment that you had where like oh i i don't want i'm, I'm now completely focused on crypto I think it was very gradual. It was just like, okay, okay so I, I at Bloomberg, I started writing about crypto. And to me, that was just like the most interesting story in markets and finance period. Like, you know, um, it going going back to any other market would have been extremely boring. So I, I, I did not want to do that. Like crypto was my space. Um, and 
so yeah, I was like writing about crypto every day. And for a while, like I didn't see myself ever leaving Bloomberg. Like, okay. So I even pitched Bloomberg's for, I, I, I wanted to be the crypto team leader. And I, 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 I thought, okay, maybe that's kind of my path, you know, like I build out the crypto team at Bloomberg. Um, they didn't listen to me uh, back then. And now they're, they're building their crypto team. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, I really want to we're say gonna put a pin songs. on that one and come back to that one later but but keep going <laughs> yeah so it was yeah it was gradual I was like started writing about crypto then um thought it was really you know it was really a a, a good opportunity to write a book on the history of ethereum um and then like writing the infinite machine I I, I really made a a like I really wanted to immerse myself in the Ethereum community because I, I think what's important about Ethereum is that like it's 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 its strength. You know, the the it's the Ethereum community is Ethereum's strength. You know, like other other blockchains can claim to have faster tech or whatever, but Ethereum is still leading because it has like all these all these people uh building on top of it so i wanted to like see this community so i went to like all the conferences and, and hackathons and um and so that's when i i realized you know these guys and and gals are building something real you know this is different from icos like this stuff is actually working and has users and volume um and to me that was just like incredible you know like when i started seeing that in in 2019 it's like this actually looks like uh a, like a parallel financial system and we're watching it grow from from the ground up like it's emerging in front of our eyes and i was like this is incredible like how is nobody seeing this like this is such <laughs> a huge story um it's so important like this this is making like we're making history like this is this will change the world so to me like just that um, when I realized that, I'm like, this is such such a huge opportunity to be here at this time. Like, and it just like didn't make sense to to be a Bloomberg reporter, uh, like writing about any other market anymore. It's like, no, like this is huge. Like, this is where I need to be. Who was the first like big Ethereum person that you met when you were going to these conferences and getting introduced into the community? Um, the first. Let's see. I mean, my, my first like interview with an Ethereum co-founder was Charles Hoskinson. <laughs> <laughs> this was for the book? Yeah. <laughs> um, Charles so, Hoskinson was the first. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had actually interviewed him for Bloomberg mm. uh, for like a separate story. Mm. I don't know. I don't know why. Like, I don't know why for some, I, I can't remember for some reason I, I got his contact. Mm -hmm. um and of course like at the time 2017 reported I, I didn't know like the backstory or anything um and cardano was really like just still just like a project um at the time like an idea well, allegedly but it's I thought, still just a project but i'll keep well, that to myself <laughs> i didn't say that um <laughs> no, that was me <laughs> yeah so um yeah, I don't know. So I, obviously you see Ethereum co-founder. I'm like, oh, like this guy's a big deal. And so I interviewed him for a, a story at Bloomberg. And um, and I remember that story went viral. It was like, mm -hmm. he was like, yeah, this thing is a bubble. And at the time, like you didn't really, like crypto people didn't really say that, you know, at, like before the, like the, the peak. 
And so the, the headline was like, Ethereum co-founder says crypto is a bubble. And that story just like went nuts because it, that's exactly what a lot of Bloomberg readers wanted to, to hear. Right. <laughs> so anyway, so I had that, that um, contact uh, made with him. And so for like at the time of the book, I, I interviewed him first to just like uh, start like making my initial initial outline. Mm -hmm. And then um, another... Uh, 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 an interesting story on how I met one another Ethereum uh, co-founder is how I met uh, Amir Tetrit. Mm -hmm. And he's like what, one of the lesser known uh, Ethereum co-founders of the original kind of eight. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, like, I, I think that, like I had researched him online. Like he doesn't have, he's not on social media. Like he, he there's not like an official like company or fund or anything like there's like there was like no no way of getting to him I was like I don't know how I'm going to interview this guy and then uh this was like consensus 2018 or 2017 it was like maybe like consensus invest 2018 or something like May March I don't well something around then and I was getting coffee um at like I don't know one of like the side booths and then like this guy comes up to me and just like start, starts like chatting, like, hey, like, uh, how are you finding the conference? I'm like, oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm here reporting. I'm, I'm writing a book on Ethereum. And then the, the guy's friend like starts cracking up. And he's like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, you're going to want to speak to this guy. I'm like, why? Like, who are you? And, and Amir was like, no, 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 like, no, don't. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I would expect his reaction to be. <laughs> yeah. And the friend was like, no, no, really, like, you, you need to talk to this guy. And so I, I, I pushed and he's like, fine, like, mm -hmm. I'm one of the co, or like the friend told me, he's like, no, he's like one of the Ethereum co founders. <laughs> and wow, that's what, how I what got, a lucky I got line for coffee to be in. <laughs> that was so lucky. Yeah, I don't know. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Cami thus far. We're going to get into the second half of the show very shortly here where we talk about Cami's book, her building the Defiant, uh, where the vision for the Defiant came from and where it's going to go. Uh, so all of that and more right after we take a short moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. And now it's live and has over 100 projects deployed. Gas fees on Ethereum L1 suck. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. And that's why teams like Arbitrum have been hard at work developing layer two solutions that makes transactions on Ethereum cheap and instant. Arbitrum increases Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better user experience, go to developers.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. And if you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps being built on Arbitrum. Many DeFi applications on the Ethereum L1 are migrating over to layer twos like Arbitrum, and some are even skipping over the layer ones entirely and deploying directly on layer two. There's so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so go to bridge.arbitrum.io now and start bridging over your ETH or any of the tokens listed and start having the DeFi or NFT 
experience that you've always wanted. Living a bankless life requires taking control over your own private keys, not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite DeFi apps all in one spot, Ledger Live is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy your crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into all of the DeFi apps and services that you're used to. Using Ledger Live, you can stake your ETH in Lido, swap on DEXs like Paraswap, or display your NFTs with Rainbow. You can also use Wallet Connect inside of Ledger Live to connect to all the other DeFi apps that keep coming online. DeFi never stops growing, and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all of the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has, and stay tuned as more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your DeFi apps all in one space. Okay, so uh, we got a, a little bit uh, ahead of ourselves. I, I want to go back and uh, uh, you, you had to pitch someone that they needed to fund this book that you were going to write about Ethereum, right? Like, uh, I've never written a book, so I don't know what this process is like. Um, can, you, can you tell us the story of the genesis of the idea for the Ethereum book and what you had to do to actually turn this idea into reality? Um, sure. Yeah, that was, um, so how, what happened? Um, I was reading the spider network mm. by, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on David, uh, Ehrlich, Ehrlich. I'm not sure how you pronounce David Ehrlich. Um, and I, I looked him up, like I was reading the spider network and it's exactly the kind of book that I always wanted to write. The kind of like Michael Lewis type book, you know, it's like, uh, like nonfiction, but told in a narrative way uh, so that it, it, it seems like a fiction novel. And it was like written like really perfectly and like with so much reporting behind it. And I'm like, this is a book. This is like this, but for Ethereum. And so I looked him up and saw that he was in New York. And uh, I asked him if he could get coffee and he graciously said yes. So I was like, yeah, just I, I, I want to write the kind of book you did. How did you do it? And what, did, what should I do? Um, and he put me in touch with his agent. Mm. And um, and then, yeah, just like the email was probably like, hey, I want to write a book about crypto, thinking about the story of Ethereum. And the agent was like, yes, wow. <laughs> let's do it. Wow. Like, yes, that was that was really that was really lucky. Um, well, yeah, were you surprised I, that it was immediate? Yes. Yeah, I was really surprised because I, I like obviously I googled like how to like write a book, and <laughs> I've I've heard um, you know, like so many horror stories about being rejected by twenty agents, and you know, mm -hmm. so yeah, no, that was I was really lucky to just like reach out to uh to David and and he put me in touch with uh with my agent and um and then uh, my agent was like instantly like into a crypto book um so yeah i met with with dan mandel and uh, told him my, my idea for this book uh which you know from the start was it was meant to be a non-technical book about the history of ethereum just like the people behind it the founding story 
the like challenges the founding team met, how they overcame that, which is like more like a people story um, about Ethereum. And and he, he really liked the idea. And so uh, I had to write this like very like complicated uh, book proposal, complicated in the sense of like what it had to include. It, it was really like a, almost like, like a, like a business model proposal, um, like a business pitch. Uh, it was, okay, so what, what's this book? Why me? Why now? Um, a, a sample chapter, like I had to write out a chapter. I had to write out the outline of the book with like chapter by chapter, um, like summaries, like each chapter had to have like uh, a couple of paragraphs summary. So it was just like this huge document, like what other, like, like the competitive analysis, like what other similar books are there um, out there? How did they do? It's just like this whole thing. Like it took a, like uh, a, a while to put together. And then with that, uh, Dan sent that uh, pitch out to uh, a bunch of editorials. And, and that process was like, it was so nerve wracking. Uh, we had like the tier one uh, editorials. So I started like hearing back from Penguin and like, I don't know, like the other big ones. And some of them were like, just really mean, like, no, we don't like her writing. I'm like, oh. and that like really kind of like, oh. Right. Wow. Right, <laughs> like, right to yeah. the heart. Wow. It's right to the heart. Yeah. Or like, no, crypto is dumb. Which you know that doesn't hurt that much because you know it's not true. But like I don't know if like my writing is actually bad, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but finally, you know, um, Harper Collins, like one of the the bigger ones, says yes. Like says they're they're interested. Um. Yeah, that was like one of the best days. Uh, yep. Getting that email, like Harper is interested. Um. Did yeah, you think there was a chance that uh, no one was going to say yes? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I thought maybe, you know, like maybe I would, I would, I would still publish the book. Like I, I would self-publish. I, I would find that way. Like I, I, I never thought that the book wouldn't get written. Like I, I was okay. totally convinced this would get done. But yeah, I, I, I didn't know like who would be interested. I was like completely floored to to find that uh, that Harper Collins was, and then. Um, yeah, then it was like, they, they're interested. Uh, they made an offer like, uh, for, um, an advance uh, on the book. And then the next step was like meeting with, with the editor and seeing if they liked me, uh, because apparently like you need to like sell yourself as an author too. Mm. So that was, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really fun interesting process like I I I, I don't know I, I I was like pinching myself throughout that whole thing just like going down to HarperCollins office in like downtown Manhattan and like this huge like high rise and amazing offices and just like meeting this like badass editor of like shoot um she's uh my editor was the uh the head of like the business section for for HarperCollins um so that was amazing. And and then like she she was just like really like an amazing editor. Like she had like really good um comments on like how to help the book. That was like one of my 
my like concerns going into the process because I know like I had the experience of Bloomberg editors and they are brutal like they just like mm-hmm. take your stuff apart and you know it's like I'm constant like revisions and stuff um so I assumed it would be the same with with this book and maybe I would have to like make compromises on what I I wanted to say um but no Hollis uh my editor was amazing like mm-hmm. she all of her like input was on point and like when when I said no I actually want to keep this she was like fine uh she yeah so I I had a, I had such a good experience with that um I, I will say though like the, the next book I write which I I hope to write a second book I really want to do it the um this intermediated way <laughs> you know self-publish okay. uh advance from the community uh nft cover whatever like right. i i had my 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 you know my my time with the ed- editors and editorials and publishers and it was great mm-hmm. but i think we have the tools now that i don't i don't need them anymore sorry Hollis. i i really like you but you know. <laughs> well, when you are literally writing about a de- decentralized financial ecosystem, it makes sense that you yeah. can find a way to decentralizedly in a decentralized manner finance a book, especially when you already have the record of having this book under your belt as well. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's the case. Uh, I've been like thinking about it for for some time and yeah, I think I think it would be a really cool project. I I as soon as I find the time which I don't know when, but at some point I'll find the time to do that. <laughs> yeah, that is the funny thing about working in crypto is no one really seems to have any time anymore. <laughs> crazy. No, crazy. Yeah. But uh, Cami, I do have to uh, give you all the praise that you deserve because you talk about uh, you talked about how um, the thing that really set Ethereum apart is its community. And th- I mean, this was certainly true all the way back to almost perhaps even the genesis of Ethereum, but it's only become more and more true as time has gone on. And I think um, as a quick little history lesson of people that weren't around in Ethereum in 2017 versus where it is now. In 2017, the developers of Ethereum and, and the investors in Ethereum, and then also like the whole ICO side of things, those were all very separate communities. They weren't very mm-hmm. cohered at all. Uh, and and slowly over those three years, that community of developers, investors, users, builders became more and more into this same like canonical Ethereum community. And I really think it was um, your book, The Infinite, Infinite Machine, that we can credit a lot of that to. Because for me, an individual who came in in, in 2017, like... I didn't, I didn't know half of the things that you discovered in, in the book. And we needed that like documentation as like a, Hey, this is actually how this happened. Like this happened mm-hmm. two years ago. No one's documented it because like this space moves so incredibly fast. So like for me, the reading that book, there was a very much just like a zero to one moment for understanding where we are in Ethereum history and, and my place in it as somebody that came in in 2017 and, and where we're going now. And so like the books like that book in particular, I think did a fantastic job actually allowing the broader Ethereum community to identify itself and really like cohere around a shared vision. Uh, and so thank you for, for that uh, invaluable contribution. Oh, David, thank you so much. No, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I mean, I, I did not think that would be like, that wasn't my, my, my 
going into writing this book, but I, I'm so glad that's that's been the case for for a lot of people. Like I, it's it's in, in, incredible to me to just see uh, a lot of the the reactions to to my book and just like hear from people who who tell me you know the, the reason I I got into Ethereum was because of your book or or I I decided that I I wanted to uh, you know start building on Ethereum because of your book like that that sort of feedback just mm-hmm. i don't know is makes like the whole experience uh so worth it and it's kind of what what makes me w- want to uh do it again because like you you make an actual impact on on people like you 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 really you know can um can change people's lives a little bit or just like help them like find find their way so yeah no Thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, of course. No, you, you deserve all of it. And like, you know, Ethereum will pull people in. It'll it'll pull like the investors in because of its reasons. It'll pull the tech mm-hmm. builders in for its reasons. But if we're going to pull everyone in, like it's going to be through stories. Mm-hmm. Stories are stories are how we're going to scale this whole entire thing out to, to literally everyone who can't figure out like, why should I care about this whole Ethereum thing? And like, if they're not investors and they don't know how to code, like what really is it in, in it for them? And I think in order to pitch it to them, like stories have to be like the last mile to get everyone into this whole entire like movement. It's so true. And, you know, I, I think um, that's where communicators like like you uh, and and myself and like so many great uh, content creators in this space uh, come in. Um, and I, I think, you know, Ethereum and, and, and just like blockchain, uh, uh, the blockchain space in general has this kind of disadvantage that because it's, it's tech, um, all of the early people in it are, you know, developers and developers aren't great at, at communicating. They speak um, different. They're, they're a different <laughs> breed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're, their thing is like building stuff. So they're not there. I mean, it's not their job to to do that. Like they're, you know, they're, they're busy creating this stuff. So um, I, I think it's it's so key to to have communicators out there representing, um, you know, hold, like holding up a window for for people who are not in this space into uh, what 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 um, like all the activity and and the potential uh, that that there is here. So yeah, I I, I do believe that uh, stories uh, and and like stories about the people. Mm-hmm. is is what it brings people in but also just like the growing um number of use cases uh, i think sure. you know that's been really interesting to see this year uh so before i think like the, the main use case for for ethereum and, and crypto was um just like investing and, and financial right like uh, buying and selling tokens and trading um but this year with with nfts we we really kind of have seen this like new wave of of users that come in like there's creators now and like musicians and artists um, leveraging this tech to connect with their audience to to monetize their their um their art in ways that they couldn't before and and so you know it's like yes like part of it is um, communicators amplifying this message and, and and communicating what's what's happening. But um, but part of it is just like this 
this technology will continue to grow to uh, enable new use cases that will bring different sectors of society in. And, you know, it, it was like started with finance. We're seeing uh, artists now. And, you know, I think we'll, 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 we'll continue seeing other, other use cases and, and other like sectors of society come into crypto that way. hundred percent, hundred percent. Cami, I said earlier that we were going to stick a pin in something. And I, I think, I think it's time to, to go back to that. Um, when did the motivations to start the Defiant come? Uh, well, that's like pretty much, um, I mean, that's related to, to what I said before. It's just like writing the Infinite Machine, being immersed in the Ethereum community and seeing DeFi emerge. Um, I just thought, you know, like there's a huge opportunity here to uh, to tell this story. Um, nobody was doing it. Like at, at the time when, when I started the Defiant this in 2019, there were no uh, DeFi focused newsletters. Like I asked around, I was like, how, like, like again, like how is nobody seeing this? Like even like crypto media, like uh, CoinDesk and, and the blog, they weren't covering DeFi. Right. Of course, like mainstream media wasn't covering DeFi. So it's like, okay, like this is like the biggest revolution in finance, like in, I don't know how long and nobody's covering it. Um, and so that's what it felt like to be in Ethereum in 2019. Everyone who cared about yeah. Ethereum and DeFi was like, am I crazy? Or is yes. like, what's, what is going on here? Why, yeah. why do people care about this thing? Yeah. 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 It, it's, it was insane. And, and so, um, you know, I thought I had already, I, I left Bloomberg in January of 2019 mm -hmm. because I wanted to uh, finish the Infinite Machine in the best way possible. And I didn't feel I could do that while at Bloomberg. And I also thought, eight years at the same place was enough time. And I just wanted to be, my, my initial um, plan was to become an independent journalist and just like freelance and write about crypto and, and FinTech or whatever. But then, yeah, like I, I started seeing DeFi and like the huge opportunity there was. And so I thought, you know, I would be a freelance writer and have this DeFi newsletter on the side. Mm -hmm. And um, as soon as I turned in uh, my first draft of the Infinite Machine, I um, I sent out the first uh, Defiant newsletter a week later on June 11th of 2019. Um, and so, yeah, I thought, you know, this this is going to be something that I do on the side, you know, in the afternoon, like after my freelance work and, and maybe like... I mean, I obviously had seen how other writers were um, were using Substack to uh, turn on subscriptions. I was like, maybe this will be a good a good way to like like supplement my my freelance income, which I didn't expect to be so so big. So yeah, that, that was the whole plan with the defiance. Um, but then obviously, like I I saw it was there was a potential for for something a, a lot bigger than just like a, a tiny newsletter. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. You, you said when you were at uh, the Defiant, you said you wanted to lead uh, the crypto team, right? Uh, or excuse me, at, at Bloomberg, you wanted to lead, lead the uh, the crypto team. And they were like, yeah, now crypto, it's it's that weird thing. We don't need that. Yeah. And which is like the, the greatest thing about crypto is that like, we generally don't get any help externally as an industry. Like no one, no one outside of crypto helps us. We have to learn how to help ourselves. Uh, and so mm -hmm. the, uh, the crypto native, we have to make our own institutions. Like Bloomberg's not going to write True. DeFi stuff on our behalf. And so we need to do it 
ourselves. Uh, and so like, you know, the, the media has exactly. to come from inside the industry. Uh, and so, all right, you, you started the, the Defiant. It was just going to be a side gig newsletter to, you know, put some excess time into. Um, but that's not what, what it is now. It's something much larger. Uh, so when, when did you realize that the Defiant could be something much more than a newsletter? Yeah, so I started writing it. And, and first of all, like, just like keeping up with DeFi was a full-time job, you know? Like, um, I was spending so much time between... I was like writing, um, still writing my book during the day. And then I would start writing the defiance like in the afternoon. And I would go like really late into the night, like to just like get it out um, the next morning and just like keeping up with all the news. Um, yeah, it was a lot. So I, I realized, okay, it's it's not so easy to like run a daily newsletter. Um, and then, you know, it, it really started to like, gain a lot of traction like people were subscribing i like i didn't i didn't really have any growth strategy or anything which is like my own twitter i i was sharing the defined that way and like people were sharing it and it just like started to grow so i i just like saw interest there for for what i was doing and uh, people were just like kept get, giving me amazing feedback um and then i decided to test whether you know, people were willing to pay for that content. So um, I think it was like maybe November, October. Uh, I I I set up like the the paid version of the Defiant, which is basically you know I just like uh, I had two versions, and one version had more content uh, than the other, and and like I realized people were willing to pay for the content I was producing, and that was like that was mind blowing to me mm -hmm. because just like putting the defiant out there under like my own name without the Bloomberg grant, without like a dozen editors, like looking after uh, my stories. That was like, that was really scary um, to start out with. And then like to see not only like I can do this and like, and, and get readers and get people interested, but like people are willing to pay for for this content. So that was like kind of the, the first sign that, okay, maybe there's something here. Um, and then I started getting um, uh, like DeFi projects and companies who wanted to sponsor the, the newsletter. So I started just like getting emails being like, hey, like how much is the sponsorship? And I wasn't offering sponsorships at the time. So like, not like, no, no. Was, was that a conscious yet. choice? As in like, no, I don't want sponsors. Or it was like, oh, I've forgot that I could sponsor this. Yeah. Like, the second one? The second one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, like I didn't, I didn't think about it. Um, and, and at first it was also like, I wonder if like having sponsors will, um, you know, affect like my journalism. Like that was also a concern. Mm -hmm. So I, I was like, I wasn't sure about the whole like sponsorship thing, but at, like, at least I knew that people were interested in, in paying for the Defiant, like paying to be featured and paying to read it. So I realized, okay, there's there's a business here. And I decided to go all in and you know, forget about freelancing. And uh, yeah, just like make sure like that I could build it out into something bigger. Where'd the name Defiant come from? Uh, I don't know. I think it was like looking for variations of DeFi. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, I think I have I have the notebook where I put like down like all the different names, mm-hmm. like DeFi Weekly, DeFi Daily, DeFi Standard, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then like, um, and and uh, my husband Chris helped me out uh, with with the names. So I I need to give him credit uh, for that. We were both like thinking about. It. I think like on a plane, um. I don't know, like planes are such good good places to like brainstorm stuff. Like yeah, you, you what else really, are you gonna do? <laughs> you really can focus. Yeah. So I think it was on a plane that we were like both like going over this notebook of, of names. And then I thought, you know, I, I don't want it to be so obvious, like right. defy something. Um, so it was like with, with that idea in mind. Like I wanted like, yeah, the sense of like defying um and not have like like the actual name DeFi mm-hmm. and yeah. Close, but not, not actually DeFi, but close enough. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember in uh it might've been 2018. So this might've been settled by then, but I definitely think it went into 2019. There was a, a time where me, Eric Connor, Ryan, Sean Adams, we were like, DeFi is a shitty name. Like open fi- <laughs> open finance is better. Were you were you watching us have that that those conversations on Twitter and you got guy, I, I hope these guys like stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um I know, yeah. I don't know if it's a great name. I but whatever, you know, I think like it is what it is. Like people, oh, at this point, at this point, DeFi is absolutely it. stuck. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. the Define is a fantastic name. It, it exudes so much of crypto values in a single word, which I think is fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I really love it. Mm-hmm. And, and then like, yeah, I designed the logo on, on Canva myself. <laughs> um, still need to get like an actual designer. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, this is the same thing at, at Bankless. I just, I, I picked out the font drew a red line under the word bankless and then boom, that's been our, our logo since day no, one. And, and it works. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, when did you hire your first employee at the Defiant? And who was that? Ah, good question. Um, well, hmm. so employee different from contributor, right? So I, uh, I had pay, paid labor. Who paid was the labor. first paid labor? Yeah. Uh, who was it? You know, it it might have been Lucas, who's at Bentless now. <laughs> oh no way! Really? Seriously, I think <laughs> oh, so. That's funny. Uh-huh. Yeah, he. I don't know if he was the first. It was definitely one of the first. Mm-hmm. There was also um, Sebastian uh, Saldas. I don't know how to say it in in English. Mm-hmm. But this guy Seba from Argentina. He was also writing for the Defiant, and then Cooper. Right. Uh, Cooper. He was also one of the first writers. So yeah, I had kind of that plan. When did the vision change from just a newsletter that you write, realize that you could monetize to a much more grand media company? Was there, was there ever an like aha moment or was that just kind of a slow transition? It was also a, a slow transition. It was um, like, okay, I had the daily newsletter. Then I decided I wanted to have um, a weekly interview. Mm-hmm. And with the weekly interview, I was already recording it. So it was like, might as well have a podcast. So that happened. And then Robin uh, reached out because uh, he had interviewed me for a documentary while he was at Harmony. Mm-hmm. And he said, we are looking to like reach the DeFi audience. So can I make videos for the Defiant? And like Harmony appears as a sponsor 
uh but like we just like make videos about DeFi and like as long as like we don't have to talk about harmony that's fine like um and so he started uh, like he started the defiance youtube channel um at first just like doing this like kind of joint partnership with harmony and and then i brought him on uh, full time um and so yeah that was like suddenly i had a lot of content because uh, I had a bunch of contributors writing stories for the newsletter. I had the podcast and I had the videos. Um, and so it just like, it didn't make sense. Like the Define just like started to look like, like more of like a, like a media company than a newsletter because we had like all these, like these different types of content. Um, and it just like didn't fit in the newsletter anymore. Like it didn't make sense to have like all those stories. It just like was getting too like un unwieldy. So, um, so I I made a WordPress uh, website um, together with with a designer, and I just started like you know publishing on the website primarily, and then the newsletter was uh, the summary of things I had done um, elsewhere. Um, and with that, then like when, when all those pieces started uh, to, to emerge, then it's like I started to have like, like a bigger vision uh, for the Defiant. This was, yeah, probably um, early last, last year. Mm -hmm. um, I started to see, you know, there's, there's something bigger here. Um, and, you know, with my background at Bloomberg, to me, information is content and data like you you know it's like you, you need uh both of them because you know it's like you 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 tell stories um you you write and you know you you, you communicate stories uh but you also need to provide the data for people to um you know see see what's happening in the market and on chain themselves yeah with, without and, the data it's just subjective stories which yeah. is what you wanted to get away from way back when exactly exactly yeah um and i thought you know nobody's doing the data uh part right mm -hmm. you know like i i think the DeFi data space is, is really fragmented um i think you know there, you have like different trackers and websites doing very specific things, but you don't have like one place to get all of the DeFi data, DeFi data that you, you could need. Um, and, you know, th there's also, you, you just like can't get the same user experience you can with a Bloomberg terminal. So I was just like really missing that, um, that ability of just like this like magical black box that I described earlier, you know, like, Okay, you you get to this place, you you start typing up something, and it comes up, and you can chart it and compare it with other other things and other metrics. You just don't have that, um, and it's so needed. So, um, yeah, I decided, you know, this is what the Define should be. It should be the Bloomberg of DeFi. So we become the most trusted, uh, like journalistic news source for DeFi, and we provide the data to track and and analyze the space. Um, and that's kind of when the big vision formed and it became clear to me, this is what I need to do. Like, this is the, the big vision uh, and this is what's like really needed uh, in this space. 
So the, the, you recently launched that, that data platform. So this just uh, is almost like, going back to what we were saying at the very beginning, where like who you are seems to be a very logical combination of like all the components of your family. And so mm -hmm. this also seems to be the, what the, the defiant turning is turning into. It seems to be a logical, a very logical conclusion of your history as a journalist, right? Like lo love journalism, but you love journalism even more when it's grounded in objective facts that no one can argue with. Right. Uh, exactly. And, and so like the defiant is turning into this one, one half, um, one half, story, one half information, one half data to back that up. And you're doing that all in-house. And so you are trying to be like, um, yeah, both, both the story, the story behind the data and then also the data simultaneously in, in all the same spots. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we have the platform, um, to, to get all the insights that you need from, from DeFi and we have the writers who like take those insights and put it into words and into context and, and tell those stories. Do you, uh, do you, um, where, where does the, where does narrative come into this or does it at all? Like more subjective, more, um, uh, you know, yeah, more, 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 su more subjective, less concrete, like visions of like, cause everyone has like visions of what the future of crypto right, it will mm -hmm. be, right? Like it's completely unwritten. You know, Bitcoin's only only twelve years old, but you know, Ethereum's only six years old. DeFi is only two and a half years old. So there's a, a bunch of competing narratives as to what the future of DeFi looks like. Where, where mm -hmm. does where does uh, narrative fit into into the Defiant, or does it at all? No, I think that's Frankquest's job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So seriously, yeah. No, I think um, I think the Defiant. You know, there is some level of subjectiveness like so our editorial point of view is that DeFi is the future you know like we we believe in web3 we believe the world will be increasingly decentralized uh we believe DeFi will become finance mm -hmm. but um how that happens on what chain you know who wins whatever like all of that we leave it to our readers to our job is to report on this space objectively and you know to to tell the stories that are that are happening in the way that, that they're happening in a very kind of data backed way um and the, and the reader can decide for themselves what what they think is right or wrong or you know where they want to trade or, or or what you know they can make their own uh their own narrative um so of course there's like there's space for for opinion and we do have a you know uh, guest writers and we have op-eds op and and I think Robin is is uh, pretty opinionated in in his coverage. Um, so there there's room for that, but I don't think the I mean the the main purpose of of the defiant isn't that isn't to to like deliver a, a like a shaped narrative, but it's to give people the tools to discover you know what their own narrative is to make to make up their own mind mm -hmm. I, I i love that answer that that's that's fantastic cammy if uh the defiant is maximally successful what does it look like in five years <sighs> okay so um i would i would love for for the defiant to be uh you know the the place where people can find um all of the well let's see i want the defiant to be the most trusted uh source of information for DeFi. 
Um, I wanted to illuminate the space uh, for for people just like just coming in. So like for it to be an education uh, source uh, for newcomers and for it to be a very powerful tool tool for insiders as well. Um, but I also want to make a change in in journalism in general. So, you know, of course, um, being in, in Web3, uh, we are looking uh, for ways, we're looking at how uh, media looks like in, in Web3. So you you guys at Bankless have done an amazing job in decentralizing uh, Bankless. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also looking at, you know, how that looks like for, for like a news company, for a media company. Because, you know, I, I do want to open up uh, the Defiance um, and I want to do it in a way that stays true to our mission of, of providing like trusted information. So, you know, there's like, it, it is it, it is a bit of a challenge there because you need to retain some level of control to have that kind of just like standards and, and like quality for, for like news. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I think there's a way to do that in, in a more decentralized way. So, yeah, um, I want I want the Define to be the most trusted information source for DeFi, and I also want wanted to just like push boundaries on of what media looks like in Web three, and what the, the the ultimate goal that I that I want the Defiant um, to help shape is is just like a better version of journalism. Like, what if like the Web three media mo- model? improves uh like traditional journalism um you know right right now investigative journalism is basically dead what if we can reshape media in a way that we can find new funding mechanisms and 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 you know new ways to organize community so that we we can create uh we can revive investigative journalism um and and we can what if this like new media model um, makes it so that you know the, the the bigger stories come from just like a, a web web three native uh, community. Um, so that's that's kind of the vision that's that's still kind of not fully formed, but that's really exciting and and inspiring for for me and like where we're, I'd want to take the define going forward. Well, we all know that this whole Web3 phenomenon is a place to tinker with incentives and where uh, Web2, generally all incentives and alignments is kind of broken down. Mm-hmm. And like in the world of journalism, it's exactly what you said, where there's no more yeah. investigative journalism. There's only there's only stories and narratives left uh, in, in the Web2 world, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that, that is a very bullish uh, outlook for the world of, of, of media. And I, I definitely hope that, that something definitely fulfills this vision of reorchestrating uh, incentives with regards to, to journalism. Um, I think we have such a big opportunity here. Like, I think, I think we're all gonna make it. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Um, just a last few quick questions. Um, what's it like to be in crypto in New York? Oh, it's awesome. Um, yeah, uh, actually, like I, I, um, I, I'm launching this uh, co-working space in in Brooklyn. Um, so uh, it's cool. Like, there's like uh, lots of projects and people um, based here. Um, 
I think you know the, the city is coming alive again with with meetups and and parties and um, just like you know just random meetings uh, that I think it's like when in the middle of the pandemic we kind of forgot how useful those things were it's like okay like we can do everything uh from from our apartment on zoom but like those like just like random conversations and meetings and and meetups are you know you can't really replace them so it's good to be in a city that just like has that uh community and uh um and those opportunities so that's that's something i want to enable in uh the defiance co-working space uh colony so. Well, I, I missed going to your uh, office launch event last time I was in New York, but maybe I will be able to see you for NFT NYC. Oh yeah, you should drop by. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, I'd love to have you here. And I think we're we're doing. There's going to be like an NFT scavenger hunt. Um, I don't know what that means, but that sounds uh, like yeah. a ton of fun. Yeah, yeah, and I think one of the spots will be uh, the Defiant office, so you can also get an <laughs> NFT out of uh, out of your trip. <laughs> awesome! Well, we all love NFTs. Uh, Cami, one one last question for you: Are you a pessimist or an optimist? Absolutely, an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about the world makes you optimistic? I mean, look at where, like, look at where we're what we're doing. Like, we're we're changing the world. We're changing finance. We're changing, you know, how people organize. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hugely optimistic that, um, that this, this technology, uh, is going to change things for the better. Uh, like I, I just think it's inherently, uh, better, more efficient. It's, you know, literally cuts out intermediaries. So makes things faster and better. So at, at its core, it's, it's better tech. And so that means that we we have the the opportunity of improving how things work. Uh, I think that's that's hugely bullish and uh, makes me super optimistic about the future. Um, and also just very grateful to be to be part of it, to be here. Well, Cami, I'm grateful for you coming on and spending an hour and a half with me. So thank you for coming on Layer Zero. Oh, it was it was my pleasure. Again, like really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Really unique um, question. So thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast, and community as a Bankless Premium subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the Bankless Nation.